Hello, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. Cities. More than half the world's population lives in cities today, and that number is only growing. Urban living is certainly convenient, and it's efficient, but most of us living in dense city centers don't think about how intimately connected our lives are to the rest of the rural world. The city only exists because our surroundings can provide a surplus of foodstuffs for us to live on. But that's getting harder and harder to guarantee these days, as weather patterns change, droughts pick up, and crop cycles are disrupted. If you want to make an analogy between a living unit and the city, I think a city is the equivalent of a parasite, a big giant parasite that's living off of this landscape. And as the parasite's needs increase and the landscape remains the same, it creates huge problems for this parasite to maintain itself. That's Dr. Dixon Napamier, professor emeritus at Columbia University. So how can you turn a parasite into a symbiont? That's the big question. Depamier says our urban way of life is unsustainable, especially in the face of climate and environmental changes. But he's also pretty certain that we can reinvent the city of the future to be more attuned to the demands of sustainability and environmentalism. How? By reinventing farming and taking it upwards. The vertical farm, as he calls it, would dedicate an entire building to indoor farming. Imagine skyscrapers filled with food, glass structures with a few floors of lettuce, followed by a couple floors of tomato crops, and then some squash, zucchini, eggplant, or turnips. You get the idea. De Pommier came up with the vertical farming concept with one of his graduate classes almost a decade ago, and last year he published a book about it. But even then, the concept was just that, conceptual. But no longer, De Pommier says, Prototype vertical farms are cropping up around the world. So just before he jetted off to the most recent proposed farm site in Manchester, England, last week, Science in the City caught up with the Pommier to talk about the city, climate change, and where vertical farming stands today. Testing, testing, okay, this should work. Well, to begin, you're a medical ecologist by training. So before we talk about the vertical farms, which you're perhaps best known for, can you tell me a bit about your background? Okay. Well, um, for 27 years of my life, I conducted laboratory-based research uh, on a parasite which infects muscle tissue called Trichinella spiralis. And that was a federally funded grant, NIH. Uh, and then when the funding ran out, of course, then you have to try to reinvent yourself. So the year my grant actually expired was the year that West Nile virus was first introduced into the United States, 1999. So I picked up on that epidemic, gathered all the facts we could at the time, and the next year I wrote a small book on the subject called West Nile Story. Then I have had to do other things besides laboratory-based research. And one of the things that arose out of a class that I began teaching as the result of having more free time to teach was this course called Medical Ecology. So being a disease ecologist, you are probably very finely attuned to what's going on with climate change right now, from farming and the impacts on food supply and then how that'll affect the city to things that are direct, like rising sea levels. So could you talk a bit about what is happening right now and what you see in your work? So since I established this course 
in medical ecology, it forced me to look at the other end of, through a microscope. You're looking at small things. Now you look the other way through a telescope and you see big things. So the biggest thing that I saw looking through the telescope rather than the microscope was the fact that disease transmission is being driven by climate change. It's altering the agricultural landscape, for instance, and it's determining where you can farm. It always did, but of course we established ourselves in the places that were good for farming at that particular climate. Now that the climate is changing, farmers can't move, but the uh, landscape does. This has upset a lot of politics. It has created shortages. It has created not necessarily food shortages on a worldwide basis, but local food shortages. All of those issues sort of came together and forced me to look closer at the way food is provided and what are the downsides to the way we're farming today and can we continue to farm this way into the future or do we have to do something different to compensate for the next three billion people that are on the way right now. And since the majority of Earth people these days live in cities, you focus mostly on the city, which you've actually said is, as it is today, an unsustainable form. And that's what brings us to this idea of vertical farming. So tell me about vertical farming. So let's just back off just a moment and talk about the history of farming and the history of civilization <laughs> in five seconds or less. Yeah. <laughs> right, um, okay, are there any questions? <laughs> no, the, the, the beginning of farming only occurred 12,000 years ago, and there were no cities before that either. So the cities arose because there was a resource to take advantage of now. There was a constant food supply. There was sustainable life, supposedly. But look at all the cities that used to be that aren't anymore. Angkor Wat, Troy, ancient Rome, all of the Greek city-states. And if you go around the world, you can find lots of examples of expired cities that put all of their hopes on a sustainable production of food. Once that city grew larger than its food supplies would supply them, they began imperialistic activities, like, for instance, ancient Rome, like, for instance, the outgrowth of World War II. All of that was about land and resources and and food shortages. And so the city now becomes the place where all the resources accumulate from the surrounding landscape. And so if you want to make an analogy between a living unit and the city, I think a city is the equivalent of a parasite, a big giant parasite that's living off of this landscape. And as the parasite's needs increase and the landscape remains the same, it creates huge problems for this parasite to maintain itself. And often, parasites kill their hosts. This is a tragedy, but people die every day from malaria. People die every day from schistosomiasis. Cities also die because they parasitize too much. They don't maintain a give-and-take relationship with the landscape. So how can you turn a parasite into a symbiont? That's the big question. All of your body is covered with symbiont bacteria that used to be pathogens, but you have made friends with them, and they have made friends with you. So your body now accepts them as friendly. So eventually, parasites realize that, you know, if you want to make a living and sustain yourself, you better keep that big fat host alive over here, because if you don't, you're going to die too. So cities need to think this way too. They need to see themselves as parasitic, and they need to see the landscape as the host. And they need to start rethinking their relationship to that landscape. And how do they do that? Cities, I think, have eventually, well, maybe not the city itself, but people living in the city have come to realize that they're not helpless in terms of supplying themselves with their own resources. 
agriculture in cities has been growing now as a subject for the last, I would say, 20 years. But in the last 10 years, we see good solid examples of city farms, uh, rooftop gardens, for instance, enclosed uh, in terms of greenhouses, using hydroponic technologies, using aeroponics, growing fish in basements, uh, raising poultry on their roofs, lots of clever applications of known technologies, trying to alleviate the burden of having to wait for next summer for those delicious apricots or pears that you treasure. Why can't you have them tomorrow? So the answer is you could have them tomorrow if you plan ahead and grow your food indoors. So as long as you're going to grow it indoors and you live in a city, you might as well maximize the use of that cityscape that you've now set aside for making food. So instead of being one story, it could be multiple stories. I would love to look at the next building over from me and see my food being grown in it, in a 40-story building somewhere. We calculated through our course that if you could do that, and if you set aside one square city New York block, that's a big block, by the way, and made a 30-story building, you could feed 50,000 people a year this way. And that's pretty good because if you make, 120, good, yeah. you make 120 of those buildings, you can feed all of, all of New York City. That's the promise of developing this technology from a crazy idea in a classroom to a concept that people begin to explore on the Internet. And now I can tell you there are real examples of vertical farms in the world. And six months ago, if you had asked me that question, I would have told you there are none. Before we get to that, a little bit more about the specifics of what vertical farming is. So you would take a skyscraper, like a lot like this one, a glass skyscraper, and every floor would have something else like tomatoes or turnips or greens, sure. But there is this sort of artificiality to it that some people would see, you know, like the removal of food from soil. So can you tell me a bit about nutrients and things like that for foods that would be grown indoors all the time? Uh, I love to get a question from an audience that says that indoor farming is unnatural. Because my comeback to them is farming is unnatural. (laughs) If you look at the real world, you won't find a single farm where people don't exist. If you go into the Brazilian jungle, the closest you can get to that one is leafcutter ants. People invented farming. That's an artificial outgrowth of our intelligence. So I think what we need to do is look at the way we live and look at the way we would like to live. Look at the way we live. Are you satisfied with the way we live today? And if you say yes, then you haven't traveled. You haven't been to India. You haven't been to China. You haven't been to sub-Saharan Africa. You haven't seen people starving to death. You haven't seen little children dying from diarrheal diseases that are totally preventable by clean water. You haven't seen people die of thirst. Now, I can't claim to have seen that either, but I know people who have. Because I'm in an academic institution, and all of us travel every day, every year. And we go to places that most people wouldn't go to. And a lot of us are interested in improving the world's health. So I know those conditions exist out there. If you knew that, you would say, what caused all that? And it it happens to have been caused by a lot of encroachment into places where we shouldn't be living. All right, cities only take up 3% of the total landmass of Earth. They use the size of South America to grow their food. That's remarkable. If you put all the land masses of cities together inside South America, you couldn't see it from outer space almost. You know, you say that little patch over there, that's everybody living on this world today in that little patch. How do we do that? Well, we live in big, tall buildings. We save space. We lower our footprint, our aerial footprint, okay? But we don't lower our carbon footprint, our energy footprint, our water footprint, our agricultural footprint. In fact, by living like this, we expand it. But we don't have to. 
all we have to do is value it. For instance, cities throw away wastewater. What the heck are they doing doing that for? Because they don't want to spend the money and the energy to recover that water and reuse it again. But there are some places now that are doing that. Santa Ana, California is one of those places. Now, they, Santa Ana, California is, a, I would say, it's an economically gifted community. They have a lot of money, and they can afford that plant for $500 million. Mm-hmm. Most people can't afford that. Most cities can't afford that. But we can do something to lower our footprint in every level. And I think lowering our agricultural footprint means let's manufacture food within the city and let's reuse gray water to feed the plants. Perfect use for gray water. Safe gray water, by the way. This is sterile gray, gray water, not bacteria-laden gray water. And can you tell the listeners exactly what gray water is? I sure can. <laughs> gray water is a different color than black water. <laughs> black water is what you produce every day when you defecate and urinate. If you put those two materials together and stirred it up into a slurry, that's black water. So if you took black water and centrifuged it, that is spun it very fast, speeded up gravity, so that the particles would fall on the bottom of this vessel that's spun very fast, the liquid portion can be recovered by chemical processes which will allow you to get rid of the urea and all of those salts and just keep the water. If you live in the uh, International Space Station, they already do that. And so this is something that would happen in the vertical farm. You bet. So plants will actually put the water in the atmosphere for you, and their roots and stems and leaves will filter that water. So let's make a building filled with plants that you don't eat, but rather which purifies gray water back into drinking water. That's an easy deal. All you have to do is dehumidify the atmosphere. We know how to do that. Just use a simple heat exchanger. That's a no-brainer. You know, when you present city councils with no-brainers, but then they say, well, who's going to pay for it? Well, I want to ask you a question. Who's paying now to throw that away? And I can tell you that the citizens of that city are paying big bucks to throw away the stuff that they should be spending less big bucks to recover and reuse. And if you look at the return on investment, it's very simple. It's very easy. And there are communities doing this. There are cities like Malmo, Sweden. They recycle all their gray water. They're very, very ecologically interested in maintaining a low carbon footprint. You know what? Those people live better lives because their lives are healthier. Well, from what you've said so far, it just seems that you would have to change a lot of the existing infrastructure in order to have vertical farming. So although the rate of return would probably be much more beneficial to society, do you see the initial investment being made? Like right now, our political atmosphere isn't exactly very good for having any new technologies really implemented. So I guess now you could talk a bit about where are these vertical farms actually coming up, and do you see them being a big part of the American city anytime soon? Uh, That's a great question. Do we have another three-hour time for it? (laughs) No, but I'll I'll try to make it quick. Um, I've had the privilege of visiting the first vertical farm ever. Uh, It's in uh, Seoul, Korea. Uh, The government sponsored the program, and it's not a functional vertical farm in the sense that it's making commercially available produce. What it's doing is testing out the hypothesis that a vertical farm is a good idea. So it's a prototype. It's only three stories, and it's got grow lights, and it's using all kinds of leafy green vegetables as test vegetables. But if you look next door to the vertical farm in Korea, you'll see a much larger building. That's their national seed bank. So Korea decided to invest heavily in seed banking to make sure that all their crops remain crops and don't disappear. 
And the way you test them out is to move them next door into the vertical farm and see if they grow. So that's a great new use for a vertical farm that I, I had never even thought about before, by the way. There's another vertical farm up and running in Japan. It's run by a private company called New Veggie, and it's the size of a 747 hangar. And inside of that hangar is all kinds of automated new technologies, not, not cutting-edge futuristic technologies. These are online technologies that are available today but are rarely used for this purpose. So they're growing all kinds of vegetables in, inside. No leafy greens, of course, but they're growing zucchinis and squash and all kinds of green beans and peppers, and etc. Then there's the third vertical farm going up in Holland, which will be even more remarkable than these two, although these two are quite remarkable already. This is a commercial outfit. They're called Plant Lab, and uh, they're in Den Bosch, uh, Holland, which is, I guess, not too far from Amsterdam. They're building it three stories underground. Now, underground excludes daylight. So that means that they have discovered something about growing plants that we don't know about yet, but we will. I've had conversations with these gentlemen, and they claim that normal light from the sun contains wavelengths, which are, of course, stimulatory for plant growth, but they also contain wavelengths that are different from those, which inhibit the plant from growing maximally. So if you exclude the inhibitory wavelengths and keep the stimulatory wavelengths, they get a threefold increase in plant growth for the same plant grown indoors without sunlight but with just grow lights, LED grow lights, than they do for the same plants grown outside in sunlight. Now, granted, they can grow these plants all day and all night because there's no night. So this is a 24-hour grow cycle. So those are three that I know of, and I, I haven't had the privilege of going there, but as we speak tonight, I will be on a plane heading towards Manchester, England <laughs> to actually, uh, in, in a sense, cut the ribbon on a five-story retrofitted warehouse in Manchester whose purpose is to demonstrate vertical farming. And I think once these genies are out of the bottle, you won't be able to stop this. I mean, everybody will want to try it. Notice the countries that did it. Japan, Korea, Holland, and now England. Where is the United States? We have two on the drawing board. One is a low-tech version called Growing Power by Will Allen's group in Milwaukee. And another one is a higher-tech three-story greenhouse on the planning board and in the fundraising mode in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, of all places. So that's what's happening in the United States. I think more and more you will see this. You wouldn't call Jackson Hole, Wyoming, one of the most populist-impacted regions of the United States, but Milwaukee certainly is. And uh, I would love to see more trial and error vertical farm prototypes encouraged by government funding streams. And, you know, you say this is a tough funding time. Well, it's going to get tougher if you don't do anything. So you have to decide to do something. Now, Korea just decided to do something. All right, Japan, because of this last this tsunami disaster and the radioactivity that's showing up in their food supplies, they want to hire this new veggie corporation to make that happen all over Japan because that's a solution to that problem. So if you look at this from some perspectives, like how much money does the United States spend to subsidize U.S. farmers, it's an enormous number. It's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Dr. DePommier's book, The Vertical Farm, Feeding the World in the 21st Century, is available in most major bookstores today. You can also learn more about vertical farming on DePommier's website, www.verticalfarm.com. 
This podcast has been brought to you by Science and the City, a nonprofit program from the New York Academy of Sciences. You can find us online at www.scienceandthecity.com. While you're there, check out our new fall speaker series to be released later this month. As always, we love your feedback here at Science and the City, so shoot us any thoughts, comments, or critiques to scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time as we explore science in schools. But until then, goodbye.